Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28. Here we are already. Jesus is entering Jerusalem in what is commonly called the triumphal entry. Ready for this? Verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, not long previous before this, Jesus had announced to his disciples that he knew exactly what was waiting for him when he went to Jerusalem. That he would be betrayed, that he would be delivered over to the Gentile authorities, and that they would crucify him. He knew exactly what was waiting for him in Jerusalem, but look at what it says right there in verse 28. Nevertheless, he went. It says, I'll read it to you again. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up into Jerusalem. Friends, I think sometimes we don't appreciate the sheer courage of Jesus of Nazareth. That this was a man of tremendous courage, especially when you understand how great it must, uh, how great the courage is to know that a difficult fate awaits you and to walk right steady towards it. You know, a lot of times things that we um, think need courage in our life are sudden things. I mean, to use sort of a silly example, you know, to to push somebody out of the way of a bus that's coming down the street. I mean, that's not something you plan for or think about. It's an instinct. And yes, that takes courage. But it's a very different kind of courage, don't you think? That sees the difficulty in front of it, off on the horizon, and says, I'm going to go step by step, pace by pace, towards that very difficult thing, and I'm going to fulfill what God has called me to do. That's exactly what Jesus did. Matter of fact, the situation was even more complicated to that because John chapter 11, verse 57, says something very interesting. It happens right before this in the text chronology where it says this. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Do you understand that? Jesus was a wanted man. The religious leaders had put out the report, hey, if any of you guys see Jesus, seize him, arrest him, bring him to us. We want this guy off the streets. It was like an all-points bulletin from the police department, bring that man in. Now, if that were the case, how would you enter into Jerusalem? Wouldn't you come secretly? Wouldn't you come at night? Wouldn't you come in like a ninja or something like that? Let's look at how Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. First of all, with great preparation. Verse 29. And it came to pass when he came near Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where you, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of him. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to him, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Isn't this sort of interesting? I want you to understand something. This reflects on the careful preparation that Jesus made into entering Jerusalem. It wasn't just like he was walking along saying, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. How should I go? Oh, I'll just walk. No, wait, here's a colt, a little donkey. I'll ride that. No. 
This was very deliberately planned. Matter of fact, the way that the text mentions it, doesn't it seem like Jesus pre-arranged this? And therefore, when the uh, disciples attempted what might have thought to have been, you know, grand theft cult, <laughs> that they knew exactly what to say to the owner of the cult, and the owner of the cult said, oh, fine. So the text doesn't exactly say that this was pre-arranged, but there's certainly that feel about it, that sense that, yes, this was all arranged ahead of time because Jesus very deliberately knew that he had to enter into Jerusalem on this day in this manner. There would be something very special about this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. Do I need to remind you that this was not Jesus' first visit to Jerusalem? Which is sort of fascinating, and I don't want to get too far afield on this. But if all you had about the life of Jesus was the Gospel of Luke, you might think that this was Jesus' first visit to Jerusalem as an adult. But we know from the other Gospels that Jesus had visited Jerusalem many, many times before. So there was something special, something powerful, something unique about this entrance into Jerusalem. And he needed to ride a specific animal, a colt. Now, you know what a colt is, don't you? It's a young donkey. Not very intimidating. I mean, a, a colt is a small animal. I mean, donkeys aren't all that big. A young donkey is even smaller. The contrast is this. It's not a war horse. It's not a big white stallion. It's not even a camel that's high up. This is something like... Now, I've heard one man illustrate it like this. It's a little funny to describe it this way, and I don't know if it's entirely accurate, but he described it like this. It's like riding a big Great Dane into, uh, into Jerusalem. Well, I think maybe a little bit bigger than that, but not very much. So you're talking about a relatively small animal. Now, there's one thing you should know about the cult, though, that it was not the ride of a victorious general entering into a city, but they were sometimes used by royalty. Jesus may very consciously be presenting himself to Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace, the King of Israel. And he's going to come in into what is commonly called the triumph of Christ or the triumphal entry. I like what Adam Clark said about this. Let me quote this to you. He says, this entry has been termed the triumph of Christ. It was indeed the triumph of humility over pride and worldly grandeur, of poverty over affluence, and of meekness and gentleness over rage and malice. That's how Jesus entered into Jerusalem. One other thing I want you to notice here, look at verse 30. It says that Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey on which no one had ever sat. You know, one of the commentators that I always read in preparation for any teaching that I do is a fellow named F.B. Meyer. And F.B. Meyer was a great devotional writer and commentator of a few generations before. And F.B. Meyer, I thought, had sort of a very interesting comment on this. He said that it was interesting that Jesus deliberately chose a cult upon which no one had ever ridden because he wanted to say, I have this animal exclusively. And the guy said, there are several interesting points in Jesus' life where he claimed sort of exclusive ownership of something. I, I don't mean this to sound strange in anybody's ears, but at least in regard up to the birth of Jesus, he claimed exclusive ownership, so to speak, of Mary's womb. It belonged to him alone and nobody else. 
And then even when he was buried in the tomb, that was a tomb in which no one had yet been laid in, had a dead body put into it. You see, so there were certain times where Jesus said, this is mine exclusively. And F.B. Meyer says, that's exactly how it should be with our hearts. We say, Jesus, I am like that colt. You alone are my master. I serve you and you alone. And even if we can't look to our past and say we've done that perfectly, because there's certainly not a person in this room who has, can't we come to the Lord all over again with a renewed dedication and say, Lord, today, I want it to be that way for you today and tomorrow and the day after that. I want to be that cult, that thing that is uniquely set apart for your service alone. So Jesus is going to go on in. He has need of this particular animal. Going on now, verse 35. Then they brought him to Jesus, meaning the little colt. They brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Is there something wonderful about this occasion from the ministry of Jesus? First of all, it's calculated, it's planned. Jesus says, I'm going into Jerusalem and we're going to make a grand entrance. Get the cult that's been prearranged. We're going to come together and I'm going to come and I'm going to allow people to praise me in this unique and powerful way. Do you realize that over so much of the ministry of Jesus, he was going like this, shh, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. Quiet, don't get the crowds worked up before the time. Jesus said that on several occasions before this, but today it's like he's saying, let it rip. Here I am. I'm the Messiah. Bring it on. Everybody, you can do it. Today you can praise me. Today you can proclaim me as king. Previously, in some of the Gospels, they wanted to take Jesus and proclaim him as king. And he said, no, don't do it. I won't have anything to do with it. But today he allows it. Today he receives it. It's really quite a scene. Verse 35 says that they threw their own clothes on the colt. By the way, you you and I may think not too much of the Well, so what? You know, one of the most interesting contrasts between the way we live our lives and the way somebody would have lived their lives, a common person in Jewish society back then, is they would have typically lived with one or two changes of clothes. That's it. I mean, you go to your closet and come on. Well, we don't even talk about that, do we? I mean, it's just embarrassing what we have to pick from for a selection of clothes. But if you had one or two pairs of clothes, how would you feel about taking that shirt or that, you know, sweatshirt or whatever it is and putting it on a colt for Jesus to sit on? Or, as it goes on later on and it says, verse 36, they spread their clothes on the road. I'm going to lay it down so that the colt can walk upon it so that Jesus can come in on a grand carpet of the clothing of his disciples just because they want to show how much they honor him and love him. But then verse 37 says, that they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. That crowd extravagantly honored Jesus, and they praised God for sending this king to Jerusalem. And this is what they shouted out, verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, in the ancient world, the idea of a victorious, conquering king entering a city was well known. 
typically a victorious king came into the city escorted by the citizens of the city and by his own victorious army. So I want you to think of a great general coming in on a war horse. And there he is, the citizens of the kingdom are cheering. His own army is marching in precision behind them. They're carrying with them the spoils of war. And there's songs and there's praise and acclamation of the conqueror. And he's coming with the symbols of his victory and the symbols of his authority. And then you know what the conquering general would do when he came in? That general or king would come into the gates of the city and he would go right to the most prominent temple in the city and he would offer sacrifices to the gods of that temple in that city. This was a very common idea, a motif. That's just what victorious kings did in the ancient world. You know what I find fascinating about this? Didn't Jesus take this whole customary thing and turn it on its head? So what does he do? He comes in with the citizens of his kingdom. Some of the other gospels says it's a bunch of little children praising him. And then he comes in what? With his army. Well, there's the 12 disciples. That's a pretty impressive army, don't you think? And he comes in with the symbols of his authority and acclamation. And what are they doing? They're shouting out praises. Yes, they are. And they're waving palm branches. Those are the great symbols of his authority. And then when he comes into the city, yes, Jesus went straight to the temple. Spoiler alert, we'll get to it at the end of the chapter here. But what does he do when he goes straight to the temple? Does he offer sacrifices to God? No, he cleans house. Isn't it interesting how Jesus very deliberately took this motif? It's like, well, everybody knows what a king does when he comes into a city like this. And he said, no, you don't know me. You don't know the kind of kingdom I have. I come as a different kind of king. I'm coming on a colt. I'm coming and they're praising, yes, but they're praising me as a different kind of king. Look at my army, these disciples following. Look at my citizens, the children praising me. Look at the emblems of my authority, palm branches waving. Look at what I do when I come into the city. I clean house at the temple because I'm God. Isn't this amazing how Jesus takes these powerful symbols and turns them on their head? Now, The reaction was not universally approving. Look at verse 39. The religious leaders said this. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, the crowd's praise made Jesus' enemies uncomfortable. And they objected to this praise that was being offered. Now, why? Because when they heard Jesus being praised, they knew that they were being defeated. I like what John chapter 12, verse 19 says on this day. It says, quote, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, this is what the Pharisees said at the triumphal entry. They said, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. That's how the enemies of Jesus feel when Jesus is being passionately praised by his people. You know, the true worship of God, worshiping him in spirit and in truth, is necessary and powerful on so many different levels, but one of the most necessary and powerful functions of true worship is that it upsets the devil to no end. It really bugs him. When God's people come, with true hearts, with with genuine faith, and simply worship Jesus. That bothers Satan to no end. 
And so God's people should always be willing to genuinely praise their Savior because, because it tells Satan, you've lost. One of your great purposes is to distract praise from the legitimate Savior and draw that illegitimate praise unto yourself. You say, no, Satan, you're not getting the attention, not your distractions, not your diversions, not anything else. Jesus Christ is going to get the glory and the attention. So, when the cry went out for Jesus to rebuke his disciples, do you see what he said in verse 40? He said, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, Jesus said that when the Pharisees told him to quiet those who praised him and received him as king, he said, no, I'll tell you what, if these ones would be quiet, the stones would cry out. Now, don't you wish that everybody would have quieted down just for a moment? To actually hear the rocks. It might sound very strange to us, the idea of the rocks or the trees or the hills praising God. But you know, the Psalms are full of that kind of talk, as well as other of the prophets in the Old Testament. That, that the creation praises God. And it was so critical, it was so essential, it was so right that Jesus be praised on this day, that if the people didn't do it with their mouths, God would have done it with creation. Because there was something unique and powerful about that particular day. Everybody was praising God, it's true. Look at verse 37. It says, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice. Not just a few of them, but all of the multitude of the disciples began to rejoice. I like what Charles Spurgeon observed about that when it says that all the multitude is rejoicing. He said, you know what? I bet some of those people had a sick child at home. I bet some of those people had some trouble or difficulty in their life. And look, I don't want to minimize whatever particular struggle or difficulty you have in your life. It may be real and it may be Maybe quite scary. Maybe much worse than any things I have going on in my life. I really don't know. But I'm not here to compare our problems or find out who's got the worst problems in their life right now. I'm just trying to say this. No matter how bad the problems are in your life, you can still praise Jesus Christ. You can still find a place to give him worship. You can still exalt him as God over your life. And you'll find a measure of peace, a measure of joy, and a measure of satisfaction in doing one of the things that God created you to do. So Jesus says that. Now notice there's one other thing. Verse 37. He says, They praised him with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. You know what I like about that phrase? Look at it. I think that this is sort of instructive for us about the way that we praise Jesus. With a loud voice... For all the mighty works which they had seen. In other words, their praise of Jesus was not mindless. Praise Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. Because he healed blind Bartimaeus. Because he forgave Zacchaeus. Because, you see, mighty works, mighty works, mighty works. God wants your praise of him to be intelligent, not mindless. If anybody were to say, praise the Lord, you should be able to ask them, why? And they should be able to give you an answer. Well, I praise him because this, this, this. It shouldn't just be mindless or mechanical, but God gives us more than enough reasons to praise him. And that's what the crowd was doing at this particular moment. 
So he comes in with all this grandeur, with all this praise, yet at the same time turning the traditional entrance of a conquering king or general into a city sort of on its head. But notice what he does now, verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden before your eyes. He drew near the city and he wept over it. This was a deeply moving moment for Jesus. You might think that Jesus came into Jerusalem and he wept considering his own fate in that city. He came into the city and he wept thinking, in one week, less than a week, I'm going to be hanging from a cross. He didn't weep over his own fate. No, not at all. He wept over the fate that awaited Jerusalem that would reject him. One Bible commentator, a man named Leon Morris, he says that wept here is very strong. He said he might translate it wailed as if Jesus burst into sobbing when he saw Jerusalem from this distance. Matter of fact, let me read you a quote from G. Campbell Morgan. He said this. The cry was that of frustrated desire. He had visited the city with the desire to deliver it from the things of destruction and with the offers of the things of peace. The spiritual blindness of the rulers and the people was such that they did not discern the meaning of the visitation. The result was inevitable. There could be no escape from their destruction. That's what made Jesus weep. And that's why he says in verse 42, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. You see, this was a turning point for the Jewish people. Their leaders had rejected Jesus, and most of the people would at that critical time follow their leaders. Yet if they had known Jesus, if they had known his work as the Messiah, they might have been spared this destruction to come. It is said that in some very old copies of the Bible, you won't find these words of Jesus weeping over the fate of Jerusalem. But those aren't accurate copies. The people who copied those editions of the Bible, they thought that they were doing God a favor by saying, well, Jesus shouldn't be seen to be weeping at such an occasion. Are you kidding me? Whenever the judgment of God comes... God is not rubbing his hands with a great big smile on his face about how happy he is to judge his rebellious children. No, God's judgment is done with tears in his eyes, with agony in his heart. Oh, it's done because God is just and he can't neglect his holy justice. And you could say in an ultimate sense, it pleases God to exercise his judgment. But if we could use a human way of expressing things, he's not happy about it. Tears fill his eyes when he thinks of the judgment to come upon his rebellious people. Tragically, virtually all of the people of Jerusalem did not listen to Jesus and they perished. But those who 
had known the Christians who lived in and around Jerusalem, they escaped the catastrophe that came upon Jerusalem almost 40 years after Jesus said these words. Matter of fact, look at these words again at verse 42. He says this. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. Jesus mourned over the fact that they did not know the time of the Messiah's coming and the day. Notice the way and that phrase is used in verse 42. In this your day. There is some impressive, though I should say controversial research, done by a scholar of a hundred years or so ago named Sir Robert Anderson. Sir Robert Anderson was an esteemed British scientist, and he was skilled with uh, astronomy and all those different dates and timings and things like this. And according to his calculations, when you take the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 that says Messiah the Prince will come after what turns out to be, according to our calendar, 483 years He calculates it exactly, and he says that Jesus entered Jerusalem exactly to the day, 483 years after that prophecy started its enacting point. Matter of fact, he makes a big deal over the fact that Jesus knew it had to be this day, and he deliberately structured his ministry so that he would arrive into Jerusalem on that very day, specifically and exactly fulfilling the prophecy to the day. Now, I don't want to act as if Sir Robert Anderson's findings are not without controversy. There's some people who find them controversial, but I'll say this. Some of the esteemed scholars that I've read say nobody has disproved them categorically, and I find them radical and compelling. You see, this is the day mentioned in Psalm 118, verse 24, where it says this, This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That's talking about the Messiah's arrival in Jerusalem. And the emphasis is on this particular day. But they missed it. So now look, starting at verse 43. For days will come upon you, And he says, you, he's speaking of Jerusalem. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. First of all, Notice what Jesus says. He lists at least five specific aspects of the coming attack on Jerusalem that would eventually come from the Romans in about A.D. 70. He talks about the building of an embankment, the surrounding of the city and laying siege, the destruction of the city, the killing of the city's inhabitants, and the complete leveling of the city. And each one of those things was precisely fulfilled as I said before, some 40 years later. Matter of fact, the historian Josephus described in detail the embankment around Jerusalem and how utterly it shut up the city before the Romans totally destroyed the city. Let me read this to you from Josephus. Ready? All hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews together with their liberty of going out of the city. 
Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms of women and infants were dying by famine, and the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine, and fell down dead wherever so their misery seized them. For a time, the dead were buried, but afterward, when they could not do that, they had them cast down from the wall into the valleys beneath. When Titus, on going round his rounds among these valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, he gave a groan and spread out his hands to heave to heaven, called God to witness this was not his doing. Friends, that's a small glimpse of how heavy it was when the Romans finally fulfilled this prophecy and destroyed Jerusalem. But get the point. Jesus invited them to escape. You know, anytime God announces judgment, there is an inherent invitation to repentance. Either on an individual level or a national level, those who heeded the words of Jesus on an individual level were spared the destruction and the agony of Jerusalem. And if, and I know this is purely a hypothetical because we can't get in a time machine and make it differently, but if, if the nation at that time as a whole would have trusted in Jesus, in particular their leaders, then friends, they would have been spared this destruction. But they did not. And they were not spared the destruction. God will not be mocked. And he is merciful. God is so rich in mercy. Think of the most merciful, gracious person you know. And think about how God is almost infinitely beyond them in mercy and grace towards everybody. But there is a limit. And the judgment of God is real. And this is what made Jesus weep when he looked over Jerusalem. Now, once in Jerusalem, he dried his eyes well enough to do this. Look at verse 45. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. What did he do? Verse 45 tells us that he went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. I want you to understand that there is a direct connection over Jesus' weeping over the fate of Jerusalem and the shenanigans that were happening in the temple courts at that time. You think, these were people looking for the Messiah. These were people waiting for him. These are the Jewish people. This was the promised Messiah. How could so many of them, of course not all of them, but how could so many of them miss that Jesus the Messiah had come? I'll tell you one of the reasons why is that they were, just, they were distracted by materialistic concerns. And they weren't looking for the Messiah the way that they should have been. Instead, what was their interest? They were buying and selling and doing so in the very courts of the temple. 
The whole Temple Mount was a vast array, a big piece of real estate. And in that piece of real estate, there were people buying and selling in the court of the Gentiles where it should have been a place for the nations to come and pray. Now, it wasn't just that they were buying and selling. The Bible also tells in some of the other Gospels that they were doing so dishonestly. They would mark up the prices either on sacrificial animals or special coins that had to be bought. They would mark up the prices sometimes as much as 20 times over their street value apart from the Temple Mount. So not only were they doing business, but they were doing it in dishonest ways. And so Jesus' anger, look at verse 45, was against both those who bought as well as against those who sold. And what he did was he sort of did an acted out parable. Friends, I don't have any doubt that a day or two after this, those same stalls were set up again. But what Jesus did was he said, I'm acting out a parable. When I come into the city as king, the first thing I do is I clean up things among my people. And that's how it is. Friends, sometimes I think that the church is in for a rude awakening when we pray, Oh Lord, come visit us. Oh Lord, send revival. Oh King Jesus, we receive you. Because let me tell you how a lot of Christians pray that. Oh Lord, King Jesus, we receive you. And go get those filthy sinners out in the world. Come on now. Listen, how about this? Oh King Jesus, please come among us and make a whip and drive out sin in my own heart. Drive out materialism in my own life. Drive out idolatry in the temple of my soul. That's what King Jesus does first. Before he confronted the religious leaders, before he confronted any of the Gentiles, in that, he dealt with the heart of the matter at the temple. And that's how he wants to deal in our life. You know, this kind of throws away our thoughts of the Sunday school Jesus, doesn't it? Skipping through the fields, picking flowers, patting children on the head. Man, he drove them out of the temple march. And again, I know that they came back. But it was a very important, acted out parable. Why was it important? Look at here, verse 46. Because he said, my house should be a house of prayer. Now, it's interesting. If you look for the fuller account of this in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, he puts it this way. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? You see, the real problem with this was that they were setting up their, you know, swap meet... In the court of the Gentiles. That was the only place where a Gentile could come and seek the Lord on the Temple Mount. And he was coming and trying to seek the Lord. But everybody was shouting around him and doing business. And he couldn't pray in the court of the Gentiles. Jesus cleaned it out so that the Gentiles could come. So that all nations could come and pray and seek the God of Israel. Because his house is to be a house of prayer and a house of prayer for all nations. And when that was all done, what did he do? Well, if you or I were in that situation, it might say something like this. And after he cleared the temple, he hid out for a few days until everything quieted down. No, look at what Jesus does. It's really great. Verse 47. 
and he was teaching daily in the temple. He's a wanted man. Jesus, there's wanted signs for you all over town. The religious leaders are looking for you. Jesus says, here I am. Come and get me. The problem was, he taught so much truth and was so popular among the people that the religious leaders were afraid to touch him. That shows the courage, and if it's the right word, if it's not, forgive me, it shows the courage and the cunning of Jesus. He knew that he could hide, best of all, in plain sight. Here I am, I'm teaching the crowds, come and get me if you dare. No, 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 no. They knew that Jesus was too popular among many in the multitude, so they had to do something even more evil to get Jesus. They couldn't just walk up to him and arrest him. Rather, they had to do an inside job and turn one of Jesus' own 12 against him. But that's for later on in the Gospel of Luke. You get the point? Shouldn't we say this right now? Jesus, clean out my heart, then teach me. You see the order of events? First he cleansed, then he taught. That's what we want Jesus to do in our life. Let's pray it to that effect right now. Father in heaven, that's what we pray for. We think, Lord, of our hearts as being sort of your temple. You describe it as such, Lord. And so we say, Jesus, cleanse our hearts. Make that whip of cords and drive out whatever you need to drive out in us. But then, Lord, after you do that, would you please do that positive work of teaching We pray that we would give as much attention to you as the crowds do here as they're described at the end of chapter 19. We love you. We praise you. We ask for your work to go on in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.